0: I almost sound sick. I don't like this. Is this just my morning voice?
1: That might be your morning voice.
0: (laughs) Hello and welcome to Coffee Talk with Steph and Chris. Ah, sugar, that's now on. That's recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Steph. Hey, Chris. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. I'm back in Elm World.
0: Elm. That's very exciting. Well, I think it's exciting. Do you think it's exciting?
1: I do. I've dabbled in Elm just a bit. So a previous project that you and I were both on that used Elm. But when I was on that project, I was still doing a lot of Rails work as well. So it was more of something in the peripheral that I knew about and could uh, worked in a little bit, but I was still doing more Rails feature work. And then we had a second stint on that project where I got to dive heavier into Elm. So that was a lot of fun, but then I switched to React and TypeScript and moved away from Elm and now circling back to Elm after doing TypeScript has been an adventure. It's been interesting to see types continue to have a stronger presence in my work.
0: I'm guessing like each of those stages informed the next one where like you had worked a little bit with Elm and then when you went into TypeScript, you're like, okay, I think I, some of this makes sense and then that kept paying forward. Has that been your experience?
1: I like to think so, that each previous experience is building for the next one. So just working in types in general is always an interesting mind shift for me. And I appreciate each time I have the opportunity to work in a more typed focused language so working in scala was a great experience and then moving away from that and then getting into typescript the only thing that was tough about typescript i think we've talked about before is the fact that it's optional mm-hmm. so you get to add the types if you want to otherwise you can also use many anys to to circumvent the the type portion of your code but now being in elm It's enforcing like you don't have that option, like you are using types. And I really like that you're forced to be consistent in your style versus TypeScript is more of an optional feature.
0: Yeah, I think the optional nature, the like gradual on ramp of TypeScript is long term, hugely beneficial to like the community and to being able to get adoption and get people like slowly bring it into organizations because it's it's a hard sell to do like a full transition over to elm or something that is that much more extreme and like the the project that you were working on the team didn't necessarily have the ability to work comfortably in types right out the gate so there was there was an overhead to that and it wasn't the right time to pay that cost but it is a definitely a double-edged sword and too many any's will lead to, well, basically just JavaScript at the end of the day. <laughs> but it's interesting then, like TypeScript with too many innings feels odd, whereas JavaScript with no types feels fine. I don't know, that's half a question and half a statement.
1: I agree with you. So going back to Elm, it does have that initial learning curve which makes it a bit tougher, but I also just sort of appreciate having to follow that one particular style. I think one of the main points I've struggled with in Elm is If you get a type wrong, so if you get like a concept wrong, and then you've embedded that or you've made that more concrete with your types. It's harder for me mentally to see what it should be instead if someone's already told me, like, this is how the world is. And I'm not sure if that's unique to me, but looking at that from a type's perspective, it's harder for me to wind it back to think, okay, well, maybe this was misrepresented in the code and it should actually be something else or it's changing. Versus when I don't have those types that are very strict about, like, this is the state of the world, it's easier for me to undo it and to change that state of the world.
0: That definitely makes sense. Types I I find are, it's a different approach and a different way of thinking. And I have personally been trying to seek out as much like, let's just talk generally about types and how to encode the system in types. And things like if you have a Boolean value and a string, and that string can only be certain options when the Boolean is true, or a different set of options when the Boolean is false. But if you model that as a Boolean and a string, you have now made it so that you have allowed invalid states of the application to exist. And so there's some really great talks that I've probably mentioned on here before, but Richard Feldman has a talk about, I think, making impossible states impossible. And Joelle has a similar talk about, I think it's specific to the maybe type, but just using the type system and encoding what's true about your application into it. And so many times I've been working with Joelle and i was just be like, actually, I, f- I feel like we may have the wrong types here because I feel like, look, we can express this thing, but that's not valid. And just spending more time with that I found to be so valuable. And like, oh, now I, can, now I can tell truths with the type system and constrain those truths. But it is such a different way of thinking uh, and a different space in which to express the program. Whereas, like, you still have all the value stuff as well. You still have to, like, make the code do things, but... It is an interesting adventure.
1: Yeah, that's a pet peeve that I didn't realize I had until a recent project is where you have a Boolean representation, and it can be true, false, or nil. Mm, and the three-state Boolean, a yeah. The three-state Boolean. And uh, there are certain cases where I understand how it works its way into the code if you're not passing in a particular value. So even though it's true or false, but in this case, it's nil if it's not there. But that that drives me nuts when I have a three-state Boolean, and it's just a weird representation of the world
0: do you find that as you're going between projects and you're moving from like, all right, it's been a while with types and then I'm you're outside the world of types or as you're going from functional programming to object-oriented, do you find the ideas from one side leaking into the other? Like I, I have definitely had the experience that now that I've seen the maybe type, I'm like, oh, well, I never want nil anymore. Nil was a bad idea. Nil or null or any of those variants. And similarly, what you're saying there of like three-state Boolean, once I learned that concept, then I was like, oh, no, never allow that. <laughs>
1: Totally. Yes. I feel the exact same way. It has started to bleed over into my object oriented code where I, I just want things to have representation. I want things to have names. So if I don't have this value, that means something. And I want to represent that to others because maybe I went through a journey to figure out like a accurate naming for why this may or may not be present. And then I want to capture that and pass it along to the next reader.
0: I went through a journey.
1: It can be. It can.
0: It absolutely, like, when you're in that space and you've spent that time and you've gone on that journey and suddenly you're holding as much information as you can, getting all of that into the system is so meaningful. And it's. I've gotten to the point where when I look at, say, Ruby code and I'm like, this method definitely wants to take a string and a string and return a number. But all I have are variable names. And in this particular case, it definitely, definitely wants those arguments to be passed in as a string and a string and to return a number. But that is not expressed here. That is not constrained. And before working with types and more functional programming, I was like, oh, this is fine. And now I just look at it and I'm like, but I left so much unsaid. I didn't write the truth into the program now. And I have things that I want to say. Uh, And that's where I think gradual typing is really interesting to me because there are times where it's really nice to be free and loose. And then there are times where it's really great to be able to say, no, this is a very pure, simple function. It takes two strings and it returns a number. I'm not even sure what the implementation of that would be. That's probably a bad type example, but you get the idea.
1: Yeah, I totally recognize that types are hard. And then there's the benefit of using TypeScript where you can incrementally learn how to structure your system in types and represent your domain logic accurately or to the best of your abilities in types. So I appreciate both worlds, but I also just appreciate the consistency of having everything in types.
0: I find that like Elm is a great training ground around those things. And then when I come back to TypeScript, I feel all the more empowered and like, oh, I've seen an example in Elm that I can now carry in. And I know that Elm sort of checked all of the edge cases for me. There's an interesting thing that I just read about, and I will admit to this being one article on the internet's worth of knowledge, but there is a new type that was introduced in, I wanna say it was TypeScript three, called the unknown type, I believe that's the name of it. And so unknown is similar to any, where it can fill in for any value, but instead of it being any, which will allow you to do anything with that value, unknown can only be assigned by unknown. So it's basically a like, I'm not sure right now, but I would like to come back and fill this in. So it's essentially a much less permissive any, but it gets you past if you're like trying to define a function and you don't know the type, the return value, or one of the values that's coming in, you just say it's unknown, but then you have to do spot checks on usage. And it's a different way to get around that, which I'm I'm really intrigued by because I think any is too permissive. I want to find a way to be like, all right, well, I know that we're going to need some escape hatches, but can we shrink the escape hatch down so that less air gets out when we do it?
1: Interesting. Unknown. How How is it checking? Why is it less permissive than an any? Is it signaling to you that you need to come back and remove that unknown type? I'm not sure why it's better than the any.
0: So if you assert that something is the unknown type instead of the any type, you can only assign unknown to it but if you try and assign a number it will say no you cannot assign number to unknown or you cannot associate those values but again i'm I'm at i know this is a thing i want to explore it more it's in this space but i'll be honest i am far from an expert on this i'm just like oh that seems like it's very useful for and i think it was designed specifically for these sort of situations which more broadly like i continue to be so impressed by the effort going into TypeScript and the fact that they're meeting JavaScript where it is and being very pragmatic, but also continually trying to push the envelope of type safety and what they can express in the type system. It's a really interesting project.
1: So you have many unknowns about the unknown type? Is this what I'm hearing?
0: I do. I do. But I hope to fill them in with proper, fully specified known types.
1: (laughs) That sounds neat. Yeah, I'd I'd be curious to know more about that type Because it is super helpful. Like when you're getting started with Elm and you need to represent something so you can keep learning. But you need to make progress. But you need to also then come back and change those to a more concrete type. So in addition to diving into Elm, I'm also pairing a lot, which has been a lot of fun. Pairing is... It's becoming more and more one of my favorite activities. So when I was starting this project, I was also starting it with Greg Fisher, who is newer to ThoughtBot. And so we were teamed up on the project to both sort of dive back into Elm. And I believe it's his first experience with Elm as well. So we were pairing consistently for, I want to say, the first two, three weeks of the project where we were showing up in the morning, probably pairing for like good, say, like nine till noon, then break for lunch and then pick it up in the afternoon. And it gave me an idea with pairing Because we talk about how much we like feedback from our types and our system and our tests and all of that's wonderful. But then as soon as you throw in the human factor of getting back feedback, people get a little squeamish. And I've wondered if people would be more open to pairing or more insistent that it's very important to their development career to pair and to pair often if they realize that that feedback is just as important as their application feedback. If not more so. If not more so, yeah.
0: Like I I definitely like the point of view that when we're writing code, we're writing for two audiences. One is the computer. Which is the more annoying and particular side of things, but uh, there's also the human side, which is us in the future, but it's also our teammates and all of that. And so properly communicating to them, I think, is the harder challenge. It's the more interesting challenge. I can trick a computer into doing weird stuff, but can I do that and also express it to my colleagues? And so at the end of the day of the two, that's the one that matters more to me. And so like PR, communication, feedback like that, but also pairing is by far the highest bandwidth and most effective means that I've seen for for anything like that.
1: Yeah. And I can understand if some folks are hesitant towards it because there is a challenge to it when you are mentally having to think through a problem. You're always also wanting to be considerate of the person that you're with. So there's a lot of just mental energy that's going into the day. And I found that at the end of a day when I've been pairing all day, I am significantly more tired than if I've been working on my own. But I also feel much happier. Like I I feel like my progress is more solid. I also like the idea that someone else is involved in this work. And so that way, if I needed to move on to something else or if someone's out sick one day, it's not suddenly siloed to one person's been doing all this work, it can easily keep going. So there's just so many benefits, and I I just want the world to, to pair more.
0: I definitely agree. I also want the world to pair more, and I share the experience of just feeling tired at the end of a pairing day or sort of wrung out. Like, I left it all on the dance floor is the phrase that I like to use. Not that I dance, but here we are. But that idea of I did... The good work today. I put as much into it as I could and no more because we're done. We're empty now, but in that best possible way. And that's a, for me, that's a really content feeling similar to, I think what you were just saying of being as impactful and working as in a focused way. I think that's the thing that's really interesting to me about pairing and perhaps why it's so tiring is that is the most focused time that I have. If I hit a wall and I'm working on my own, I might like run into that wall a bunch of times and get really frustrated and then go read some docs and get kind of lost on the internet for a little while and come back and then try something and forget what i've tried already but just having another human where i can say like i'm stuck right now can you grab the keyboard and go for a minute and typically in my experience there's often a really good alternation where one person has hit a mental wall but the other person's like well i've got some thoughts i can try some things and so the team collectively maintains momentum like i I noticed the same thing i changed my morning commute ever so slightly, I walk from South Station to the office, but there's a couple of really big crosswalks where a lot of cars come from a couple different directions, so I end up blocked there for a minute. I just hate that minute. I hate it so much. So I've now found a weird, complicated way to go like underground, through the subway system, to pop back up on the far side of the street so that when I come up, so that basically the whole time, once I get off my commuter rail, I can walk continuously. And I value being in motion, even if it's less efficient motion, very much.
1: That amuses me a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird analogy, but it felt apt and it was true today. I was really excited. I tried this out. I've been thinking about it for a while and then I tried it this morning. I was like, this was fantastic. I got to walk the whole time.
1: It it resonates with me. I understand. There's times where even if it takes me longer, but I know I get to keep moving, I'll keep going that direction. I I don't know if that's as applicable for me in terms of coding. I can see in certain ways that just making continual progress even if it took a little longer to get to the result would be very valuable to have that feeling of progress. But there's other times that I definitely do that thing where I've noticed that if I changed a file like file name or a particular function name or something like more than four or five times I'm like okay stop (laughs) and I'll just give it a silly name something so I will stop thinking about it because that's the type of like continue a little progress it's not really getting me anywhere Mm. and I don't want that feeling of just like sure I'm moving I'm typing I'm writing but I'm not truly making progress towards a bigger picture so I will stop myself intentionally and like push away the keyboard to like sit back and think about my next move
0: oh I like that That's a very good counterpoint to my summary, and I agree with everything you just said, so I I think I hold both of these views at the same time. I think the thing that I feel with pairing is like I know that there's a path forward, so I always want to be on that path forward and not end up kind of meandering off it and getting lost on my own, and pairing is such a useful tool for staying on it, and then for communicating, which I think was the first thing that you said, of just sharing the knowledge between the team and leveling up teammates on technologies or aspects of the code base. Yeah, pairing's great
1: yeah without it i you said meandering and yeah i can i can be such a wanderer when it comes to the code especially with learning something newish like elm for me because I'll see something and it's very intriguing and I want to go to the docs and dive in and learn all about it. But at the same time, I want to make progress. So if I have a pair, we'll do a very, what I think is a, a healthy balance of both. Well, we'll learn enough about something to keep going, but neither of us will dive into the rabbit hole of trying to become an expert on something in that moment. And that's the part that if I don't have a pair with me, I can be far more prone to doing where I want to understand something fully, but then that could distract me for far too long to work on something. So I I like having somebody next to me to keep me accountable, to keep it a little higher level. And then we can circle back to the the things that intrigued us. I'll typically keep a file open or a file in a project that I can open up. And if there's anything that I see that's shiny and it's distracting and I wanna know more about it, I'll throw it into that file. So then that way, like I've captured it, I know it's there, but then my brain can move on and focus on the task at hand.
0: Do you have a name for that file? And is it shiny things?
1: Oh, I like shiny things. No, I call it focus. Just Ooh. Focus.md. It's a It's such a purposeful file.
0: name, but with something like that, I would be so prone to the nonsense name. Like, this is the shiny things. That's where I put the shiny things. I cannot be distracted by the shiny things.
1: I think that just means you're more fun than I am since oh, I I don't think focus. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I like the shiny things.
0: <laughs> but focus is good. I mean, that, that is the point of it. I like that as a, a pattern. I do the same thing specifically with dot files and those sort of changes, but I don't Actually, no, now that I think of it, I, I do have an overly complicated Vim system for having a project notes file in each project that I'm working in that's get ignored globally. And so I'll just throw things in there. But I've noticed it becomes a junk drawer because it, it's both the place that I put, like, oh, okay, when I'm working on this feature, I need to think about X, Y, and Z. And I'll f- come back later and I'll be like, oh, there's a there's sort of a graveyard of things that I thought to tell myself in the future. So I don't necessarily have the diligence to to come back and revisit that file as much as I should. It's great for getting things out of my head and allowing me to stay focused but it's not as useful as the okay let me make sure I covered everything I don't know if there's a way for me to automate not automate but like build some sort of systematic review in that like every morning I start the day by reviewing that file or I don't know
1: I found that I only revisit that file when honestly if I'm intrigued like if something comes up like if I have a little bit of downtime and I'll go back to it to see what caught my attention that week that I didn't have time to dive into I'm rarely intentional about going back to review it just to review it. If I open that file, it's because something sparked that memory and I want to go back because it's like that fuzzy memory of like, oh, there's this thing, but I don't remember exactly what it was. So I'll go back there to look for it. But otherwise, I guess it's a bit like a junk drawer where like I want to put it away and it's there if I need it, but I'm probably never going to go back and curate it, at least not consistently. Although I'd, I'll i take that back a little bit. Typically when I'm starting like a new ticket or a new piece of work, because I only use that file and just that one file. So I'll go in there and it, whatever's in there, if I haven't looked at it and it's not still interesting to me, I just clear it mm. and then I start fresh. So I guess that is my curation of it. Yeah, if that's it, great. If I haven't deletion is the best curation yeah (laughs) if i haven't decided to explore in a week then i'm just going to presume that it's not important enough for me to explore right now and it'll have to come back up on its own
0: yeah i don't have that i i feel like now i kind of want to go back and scan through all of these project files from the various projects that i've worked on because they'll span years and they'll have notes that are like oh oh, okay which uh well here we are (laughs) We're in the future of that now. But
1: for me, if I hold on to that stuff, it has this weird feeling of I'm seeing a list of all these things that I haven't done that at some point I wanted to do. And this is going to sound a bit harsh, but I don't want to keep around a list of like failed things that I didn't get to see. It's kind of like if you're keeping around like those pair of jeans, like, oh, I'm going to fit into those jeans in like a couple of weeks And I just don't want the reminder like only keep around what works for you right now and discard anything else that is distracting or reminding you that there's other things you could be doing.
0: I love that thinking and I love the uh, analogies, the more real world analogies that we've been pulling into the episode today. But I think that the very honest and real thing of there is never enough time to do all the things that you want to do. So if you keep a list of everything you ever wanted to do and regularly revisit the entirety of that, that's too much. That's mm. I, I agree that that will feel like, man, I haven't done even a quarter of the things that I've wanted to do, but instead like an accomplishments list or something like that that can be the look at the things that I have done. That's That's nice.
1: Oh, I learned something new today about, or this week, about Rails. What is that? I discovered active support notifications. Is that something that you've heard of?
0: I've heard of it. Guessing
1: I've worked with
0: it, but I'm not I'm not remembering it. So can you remind me what that is?
1: Sure. So active support notifications came up on my radar regarded to doing some performance tracking and metrics. And Ebs in the office is the individual that pointed me in the direction of this particular feature, but it is a publish and subscribe messaging system that Rails has built in. I don't know when Rails added it. I don't know if it's been there for a while and I just haven't had a use for it until Mm. now. But I think it's been around since Rails 4 and it's a nice way where it provides an API that hooks that you can register for events. And then whenever one of those events is published and then the subscriber is listening for it, then you could perform some additional behavior. So in my case, I'm working a good bit on tracking some metrics and the product manager that I'm working with would really like to have more insight into how users are interacting with the page, but they're also concerned about the performance of that page. And I had some hesitancies between how do we want to surface that information of user behavior but not also replicate a lot of the application performance that's being tracked in another another system like we're using app signal to keep track of when we have queries that are running too long or to notify us when something is going wrong with the app so i didn't want to run into the case where i'm duplicating the work that we're paying for with app signal and then pushing that to mixpanel but i think in this case i found a nice middle ground by using the notifications, a lot of that performance metric stuff is built in because by publishing that event. So when running a query, I can wrap that query execution in a block and then active support instrumentation is going to provide details about how long that query took. So I have access to the start time, I have access to the duration. I can also pass an additional information to that payload or that event. So if I also want to add some context about if it's for a particular user or if maybe I'm running a particular rake task that was firing off this query, I can have access to that as well. And then the subscriber, once it hears that event being fired off, then I'm capturing that information and currently sending it to Segment, which will then forward it on to any of the other tools that we're using. In this case, we're forwarding it to Mixpanel.
0: Can you have multiple subscribers? I'm guessing you can have multiple subscribers in the system because that's typically the, the reason for that. But it's, it's interesting that you're then using Segment because Segment, I think of as sort of a way to fan out events. You send one event to segment and then it sends it to MixPanel and Drip and Kissmetrics and whichever of the suite of external tools you're using. So I'm I'm wondering what the different subscribers you would want in an app are.
1: So I can give you an example of two that we're using right now. I've only seen these two use cases. One, we do a lot of imports of CSVs from users. So we have some background jobs that are running those, and we would like more information as to when something's happening. So we're listening for, we have one of the imports where it's going to use active support notification to then trigger an event when something goes wrong with that particular import. And then we have a subscriber that's listening for that event. And from what I recall, the naming is particular for how you want to specify. So it follows the naming style of it's more of your custom name, and then it's a dot, and then it's a more generic name. So if you think of it as kind of like queues, Mm -hmm. you could have stuff that's more like all active record, all SQL, all... For us, it would be like for the imports, and then you have the more customized name in the front. And then the other case that I'm using it for is for a particular page. So my base naming, my queue name is more for that page, and then I can add specific other events, like if we're doing like a search, and I wanna track the performance of that search. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? I think yes, I'm... I
0: think so. And just having the, the opportunity to specify and do different things based on different portions of the app or whatever. But I'm surprised. I, I don't think I've worked with active support notifications much, but it is another example of like, oh, it's nice that Rails just has this stuff built in and that the things that you need to build production web apps, it's most of it's there.
1: I think what I liked about it so much, because I could, I could certainly do this without using active support notifications, and I could add this to a particular because so far we're just doing this performance tracking for this one page in this way so I could have added it specifically to there but I had the concern of uh, it's kind of like whenever you're doing the event tracking how it starts to litter throughout your Mm -hmm. code and I wanted a way that was more concrete to know like Where's all the performance tracking taking place? So I really like that I have this one file where I'm making my subscription classes and then I'm saying like what they're subscribing to, which particular notification queue, and that part feels really nice. So when we decide to potentially revisit this instead of sending the performance information to Mixpanel, but instead of sending it to a different tool, maybe Grafana would be a good one, since it'll show us more of like on a graph, user points and metrics. So that way we can still distinguish between concerns that are understanding how a user interacts with the page versus is our page performing well for the user. But it's all in one place, which makes me happy.
0: Which interestingly, I think segues very nicely into, we have a listener question, somewhat on the topic of code organization. But more generally, before we dive into that, we absolutely love listener questions, so anyone out there listening, please do send them in. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about if you have any questions about... Specific code languages frameworks career uh, really anything we're we're happy to answer whatever questions but yeah please send those in email Twitter any of the normal methods host at bike shed.fm is probably the preferred mode but uh, you know follow your heart
1: yes I'm excited that we have another question all right so this question comes from Mats who lives in Sweden so on one of the previous episodes Mats wrote in that Chris mentioned that he and Thoughtbot like Rails because you know how to structure code and where to put stuff and then said something about apps slash services. Even though it might be a boring and quote subject, I actually love to hear your thoughts about where to put and maybe how to structure code that doesn't really fit neatly into the defined Rails buckets. Some examples that I've run across where I don't really know what the right place for structure are includes business logic, process that doesn't feel like it belongs on the model, payment processing, how to wrap external APIs, PDF generation. I like to put stuff in various places, including separate gyms, in the lib app directory, controllers, models, helpers, and probably some more I'm forgetting. But I often find I'm unsure of what the correct answer is. This is a great question.
0: This is. Uh, there's a lot here. But I don't think I have a great answer to this. Or I don't think there is a great answer to this. I think predefined organizational structures often fall down. And so, if it's like, oh, no, no, these are the seven subdirectories of app that we want to have, and those are always the ones that we're going to have, it's like, well, our app's really query heavy, so we want to do that. Our app is very process heavy, we want to do that. So, I think there is a little bit of it depends to this. I will say there are a few that do seem common. So, app queries is one that we will almost always have within a Rails application. And that's a place to put database querying logic that I think often would end up in the model, uh, but we want to not necessarily overload the model with those sort of things. I will often have a lot of things in app models that are not just active record models. So that's definitely a thing that I would say we lean into is app models does not specifically mean it's a database backed model. It can be anything that is modeling something within your domain. So it can model a process or whatever. App queries is one case where I think we've found a specific thing. Lib is a place that I'll put stuff when I think it is not specific to our application. This is general logic about a topic. So say there's a particular calculation that exists in the world, but we don't have a gem that we can use for it. So we need to write that calculation logic. I will put that into lib, which unfortunately I think lib due to auto-loading has moved to be app lib now, which whatever. I ran into that on a project and after a lot of searching, that was the answer that seemed to be like thumbs up the most on a Rails issue. So I was like, all right, app lib it is, here we go. But lib being the indication like, this is not specific to our domain. We don't own this logic. We happen to have had to implement it in our code base. And ideally that can kind of push out.
1: So to circle back a little more to the specific question, when we'd reference app services, Mm -hmm. what are your feelings on app services?
0: Oh, specifically that one. It doesn't feel like it means much. To me. too like, generic? Yeah, service like what, what kind of service? I think discussions around app services were sort of a recurring theme for Derek and Sean, but yeah, cert, like it's in service of the other things in the app, but is it not modeling something? It, it feels like a distinction without a difference. And I don't find a ton of value in that. And I often find in apps that do have a services directory, there are things that obviously are the same type of thing as stuff that's in services that are in models and vice versa. It doesn't seem to actually inform organization. And for that reason, then it's just another place for me to look. And if it's not obvious to me where to look something up, then I don't necessarily want it. Like I don't think it's useful organization if it doesn't aid in finding and storing information.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I think I tend to think of anything that goes into app services. I would agree it's a bit generic and I think we could do better with just making it more specific to aid in that searching of particular classes. But I think of services of anything that's more of an action. So the things that are in app models, I'm thinking of it, state of it, representing an object, whether that's backed by the database or not. And services I'll think of more of has as like a verb nomenclature to it, like it's performing something. Mm-hmm. So I've also seen stuff for like workers as another directory. Yep. That's of a good the, one. One of the directories that I've seen that I've started using in some projects is an app clients. So specifically for like wrapping external APIs. Mm. I like having like an app clients and within the clients is where I'll define like maybe it's a Slack client or it's a GitHub client, whichever third party that I'm communicating with. That's a pattern that I've seen that I've liked, but I agree this is one of those areas where it's not defined strictly, which I really enjoy that it's not defined strictly because this is something that's going to be unique to each project as to how you name things and how you'd like to group everything into a different bucket. But it's also frustrating because it's one of those skills that just takes time mm. to figure out where should it live, what should it be called. And it's one of the tougher parts of programming that you just trial and error and get feedback from others and you'll form an opinion over time as to where stuff should live. So I agree there's not really a a solid concrete answer to this. I just think the answers get better with experience.
0: I like that. And don't be afraid to change it because once you have more experience, then maybe – you have a better answer to that question. So move things around, restructure it as it makes sense as time goes on. But yeah, I think that's, that's the world we live in.
1: With that, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Matts and others that share similar questions, I hope we've answered your question. And for anyone else that would love to submit a question for Chris and I to chat about, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email at host at bikeshed.fm. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter.
1: If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at S. vicari on Twitter.
0: And I'm at Chris Toomey.
1: Or hosts at Bikeshed.fm via email.
0: Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use with open positions at our studios in Boston, New York,
1: San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh. Come discover a better way to work.